I, was, I had been getting ready for that. And I said, like, well, what do I want to somehow dive into that? And I was like, well, that's, that's a huge topic that I'm not sure I can take on. And uh, then I remembered uh, something that I had looked at many years ago. And it, it stuck out as something that I thought would be worth us going back to remember some things. And so I'm going to start here reading a, a, a narrative story from February 1st, 2003. On this particular day, the 113th flight of the space shuttle made its usual landing approach to the Kennedy Space Center. Just before 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, however, abnormal readings showed up at mission control. Temperature readings from sensors located on the left wing were lost. The tire pressure readings from the left side of the shuttle also vanished. The Capcom or spacecraft communicator called up to Columbia to discuss the tire pressure reading anomaly. And at 8.59.32 a.m., Commander Husband called back from Columbia, roger that, followed by a word that was cut off in mid-sentence. At that point, Columbia was near Dallas, traveling 18 times the speed of sound and still over 200,000 feet above the ground. Mission Control made several attempts to get in touch with the astronauts, but they had no success. It was later found that a hole on the left wing allowed atmospheric gases to bleed into the shuttle as it went through its fiery re-entry, and the temperatures therein leading to the loss of the sensors and eventually the loss of the vehicle Columbia, and all seven astronauts that were inside. Now, after the tragic events that day, NASA spent months and the better part of that next year reviewing videos and telemetry data, anything they had acquired with their computers, looking back at flight recordings, gathering every bit of debris. You can see photos and of these hangars where they had laid out every little piece of debris, trying to figure out what happened to Columbia on that fateful day, February 1st, 2003? And in the end, it was determined that a piece of foam had fallen off at when it took off. And you'd think, well, that doesn't sound like too bit of a problem. But the issue was it struck one of the, a section of the, of the tiles that lined the underbelly of the, of the spacecraft. And these special tiles are designed to handle up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit because that's when, when that thing's re-entering the atmosphere, you've got incredible air pressure. And if you remember anything from physics, you might remember the old PV equals NRT equation. So where you build up massive pressure, the temperature will be going up rapidly. Then you may also remember a second fact that when you have friction of that magnitude of those air molecules and atmospheric gases moving around that air aircraft, the amount of heat built up from friction alone would be incredible. Then you add on top the pressure. So the two combined yielded massive temperatures, and this is where these silica tiles come in because the thermal conductivity of these tiles is incredibly high so that they will not conduct well at all but the, the heat from the outside into the metal structure in the fuselage, because if it does, that metal will immediately melt and the spacecraft will disintegrate, which is what happened 
on that particular day. And we sometimes have these, these junctions, right? These unions with two elements collide. It's sometimes where we might say it's where the rubber hits the road. That's actually a very real physics analogy as well. Because when you drive in your car and you decide to turn right or left, what makes you go right is the rubber of the tire and the frictional coefficient with the ground. If, it, if that frictional coefficient has changed, say by ice or snow, you turn the wheel and you don't turn. <laughs> you keep going straight off the road. And so we have at times these unions, these areas where the rubber literally hits the road, these critical unions. Um, and so in the case of that space shuttle re-entering, we had this, this situation with massive heating and a failure of the vehicle due to that, that, that junction overheating. Uh, now the Bible, interestingly, paints a picture of an incredible union, an incredible point of friction, if you will, between a holy God and sinful man. And I want us to look at this today, uh, and we're going to have a few very brief side treks into Indiana Jones and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But nonetheless, we will stick with the scriptures to try to see this incredible union or this, this collision, if you will, uh, this friction point between God and man. In Romans 3.25, it says, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, I want to home in on this word here. Paul says that Jesus was displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go around very often and use propitiation. Maybe students that attend seminary, MJ just informed me he finished seminary. Perhaps he uses propitiation a lot, but nonetheless, I don't. I don't use it very often. In fact, outside of reading texts like this, I virtually never use the term propitiation. So you got to say, well, what does this word even mean? What is propitiation? What is meant by it? Uh, and when we look at the word that Paul chose to use here, he uses a Greek word, helasterion. And the basic definition, if you have a computer Bible, we've got a lot of cool tools nowadays, right? So you just sort of mouse over there, put it over the word, it hovers, brings up the Greek word, says helasterion. Then it gives you the profound definition of a propitiator or an expia expiatory. Well, that really helped me. That really helped me understand <laughs> what propitiation means. A propitiator or an expiatory. Uh, and, then, and then you got, well, now what is, what is it meant to ex expiate? Then you got to look up, grab another dictionary. You find a Merriam-Webster says that is to make amends for or to extinguish guilt incurred by. So... Thayer's lexicon might give us a little deeper insight of this helasterion word when it says it relates to an appeasing or an expiating, having placating or expiating force. This lines up fairly well with the English definition that Merriam-Webster gives us for the word propitiation when he defines it as to conciliate or appease an offended power or deity. 
That's what's bound up in this word hilasterion or this concept of propitiation. Now, this begins to give us a little view of what Paul wants to get at, right? Namely, that Jesus was displayed as an appeasement or an expiator, making amends for or extinguishing the guilt for us through his blood, appeasing the demands of his all-righteous, all-holy Father, God. And now you might be in your mind thinking, wow, you know, I've never really thought of the fact of God, the God of the Bible being a God that needs to be appeased, especially by some sort of blood sacrifice. And, and that's where we'll take our first slight sidestep into Indiana, Indiana Jones. Perhaps you're remembering the Temple of Doom, where they got all this pagan worship going on, and they're about to have a human sacrifice. And if you're like me, it's like, just fast forward, because I really don't want to watch this, this thing occur. It's pretty horrific. Uh, but nonetheless, we need to see that God the Father demanded an appeasing sacrifice. It says in Hebrews 9.22 that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you say, well, but how is this idea of Jesus being a propitiation or an appeasement related to what, what you're talking about here, Joel, this ultimate friction point between God and man that we tried to picture with this space shuttle issue? This becomes a little clearer when we dive a little deeper into the word halasterion. Halasterion occurs only one other place in the New Testament. And that's over in Hebrews 9. We'll look at it in a second. It's translated there, mercy seat. You're like, well, th again, that really helped me. You're like, I don't, well, what is now? I got propitiation in Romans 3. I've got mercy seat in Hebrews 9. Uh, verse 5. We'll look at that in just a moment. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, interestingly too, if we were to dive a little deeper, you say, well, when you only find a word twice in the New Testament, a Greek word, and you want to know a little bit more about that Greek word, you might consult the Septuagint, right? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So you can go and see how they use the Koine Greek words to correlate with Old Testament Hebrew words. And then that might paint more of a picture. Maybe see how it's used. And sure enough, we find 26 uses of halasterion in the Septuagint. 20 out of the 26 times, it's translated over in the New American as the mercy seat. 20 times the Septuagint uses halasterion to describe a very real thing on the Ark of the Covenant that we'll look at in just a second. So if we want to understand Jesus as our propitiation, we need to understand what is this thing called the mercy seat? What is this? Hebrews 9 verse 3 starts out, it says, Behind the second veil, describing the Old Testament system or the Old Covenant, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And there it is, the hilasterion. You say, okay, what is this? What is this? Well, this is a part 
of the Ark of the Covenant, right? That he's describing here in Hebrews. This brings us to our next theological excerpt from the, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. How many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Pretty, pretty good movie, actually. I, I happen to really like this one. Not, not as much a Temple of Doom, but the first one. It was a cool one. So this movie, an incredible scene, you know, where they, they Indiana Jones, of course, he, he outsmarts Belloc, the guy, the, the German, well, he's an Italian, a French or Italian guy that's helping lead the German front. And anyway, Indiana Jones, with his great wisdom and archaeological digs, he's able to uncover the ark. You know, remember he had that little medallion that showed him where to go. And eventually they end up in this, this um, location. What, what was it called again? Tomb of the Un... I don't remember. They, I remember they, they had a name for this, but I don't remember what it was. But anyway, they found the ark. They go in there. They uncover it. And amazingly, actually, in the movie, the, the, the rendering they had of the ark wasn't that bad in general. So that's why I went ahead and threw it up here. They got sort of the general size is close. They got some of the, the things we'll look at in a minute from Exodus you know, on there, they got the cherubim, they got the gold, they got the rings holding the poles. And Indiana, of course, is well aware that you better not touch the ark. So they're, they're using the poles to, to guide it out of there. But that's an Indiana Jones, right? Now let's go back to the, the actual Old Testament, you know, uh, account here in Exodus 25. Uh, the Lord says, giving them instructions on how to, con to, to construct this ark. He says this. 25 verse 10, they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high, cubits about 18 inches. You shall overlay it with gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet and two rings shall be on one side of it, and the two rings on the other side of it. And then he goes on and describes how the poles enter into the rings, and how you move it and whatnot. He goes on in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat, a hilasterion in the Septuagint, of pure gold. Pure gold. Two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide. Same dimensions as the shape of the box, or the top of the box. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned Toward the mercy seat, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony which I will give you. That would be the law. Now, this mercy seat was a critical, solid gold lid, if you will, or top to this ark. With the matching XY dimensions of the top of that, of that box. It was overshadowed. By these cherubim, which were positioned looking intently at the mercy seat day in, day out, with their wings touching over the middle. Now, we don't have time today to go thoroughly through the use of cherubim in the scriptures. Uh, but to suffice it to say, if we were to look at their, their occurrence here and uh, 
in Ezekiel and some other places, you will find that there are many times shown up in connection with upholding God's righteous demands, God's righteous judgments, and God's righteous decrees. Perhaps you remember in the Garden of Eden, two cherubim are used. When are they employed? After the fall of man, after they've been kicked out of the garden, he positions two cherubim to uphold his decree that man would no longer be able to enter into that through that location. And so they were there wielding the swords of fire, these cherub, cherubim were. So we have God above. The cherubim with wings at attention looking at the mercy seat on top of the ark. And below what's inside the ark, the writer of Hebrews says, he mentions three specific things, right? A jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, we'll, we'll talk about that, and the tables of the covenant. Now, if I was to go one last time over to Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is where they got it quite wrong, right? Because when they opened the ark, you remember this scene. It's, a bit, it's like the climax of the whole movie. They get the ark of the covenant. They take it to this fancy island. They're about to do this ritual religious thing. They open up Belloc. They tried to put on the, the priestly garments. And they open, they'll take the lid off. And he's there looking out. And he finds nothing but sand. Sadly, you can actually go find a lot of people on the internet are, they actually are like, why did he only find sand? And they, they think there's, it's like, it's a movie. It's not, it's not, if you want to know what's in the, in the ark, read the Bible. Don't worry about what, on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And of course, you, none of us can forget the guy off to his right, this other German guy. I mean, he was like the guy, remember, he melted his face, like melted away when the, the ark and all these things start happening. So that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. But anyway, back to the real story. The ark had three key elements, according to the writer of Hebrews, inside that we have to understand if we're going to get a good picture of this mercy seat or the hilasterion propitiation. Each of the three elements inside in the writer of Hebrews involve God's provision for Israel. Yet they also represented Israel's direct rejection or rebellion against him. Take, for example, let's start with manna. Manna was his daily food provision. Do you remember this in the Old Testament? Gave it to him every day. This was their, their food that he provided. But this was the food they ultimately and utterly rejected and loathed. Do you remember Numbers 11.5? When they said, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. They grumbled and rejected God's provision. The second thing that's called out by the writer of Hebrews is Aaron's rod that budded. Hopefully you'd say, well, wait a second, what's going on with Aaron's rod? Why call into account this idea that it budded? What's this all about? Well, this Aaron with rod in hand represents God's appointed, one of his key appointed leaders. Yet they ultimately rejected God's choice for their leaders. And that's what the very story of his, his rod budding is all about. If you remember, you had Korah's rebellion 
when 250 guys along with Korah said, we can do it just as good as you, Moses and Aaron. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to lead ourselves. And what happened? The earth opened up and God judged those folks. The very next day, the people of Israel came. They pointed their finger at Moses. They said, you guys, you and Aaron, it's your fault. You don't know how to lead us out. You've, you've led us astray. So then God spoke up. And he said, tell all 12 tribes, one from each, a leader from each tribe to bring a rod. Bring their rod before me. Lay them out here overnight. And, we'll, and the one that buds, the one that I make bud, is the one that I've shown to be my leader. Right? And which one buds? The house of Levi. Aaron's rod. Budded. Because he was God's chosen leader. And in that chapter after it buds, God makes a proclamation in Numbers 17.10. He says, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony, before the law and the covenant, to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Those are God's words. To remember that they've rebelled against my leaders. And of course, then you have the very heart and soul here of the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets were God's holy law given the covenant with covenant to Israel, right? These were to provide blessing if they followed them. But yet, what did they do with God's covenant? They ultimately rejected and rebelled against his law. And you can read about it in the narrative Old Testament, what happened to Israel. So now the, the pictures that God's painting is becoming even more in view. You've got God seated in the heavens in his Shekinah glory. Then you've got the cherubim, these angelic beings, upholding God's righteous judgment and decrees, looking down at the focal point, the focal point, the union there at the mercy seat, the only thing that separates what's below, which is sinful Israel and sinful man, the rebellion and their sin against him. And this is the ultimate friction point right there in the middle. This mercy seat. The point, as one commentator said, which covered or shut out the claims and demands of the law against the sins of God's people. Now you'd say that this makes for a fascinating illustration. An incredible illustration. But it goes even deeper than this. Because what happened at the mercy seat? What, is there any significance other than just it was on the top of this, this box of the Ark of the Covenant? And how did Christ become the mercy seat or the hilasterion or propitiation for us? And to better understand this, we have to pause a minute for a holiday. You know, we paused here a few days back. Our country did to remember and celebrate Independence Day on July 4th. It's a great, it's a great holiday. We, and I hope you guys got to enjoy some good food, maybe fired up the grill. Perhaps you fired up a few pyrotechnics. But I hope you enjoyed the, the, the occasion. And I hope you took time to think back of what it commemorates, right? What, it, what we're there to remember. That's what most holidays are about. There isn't a people group that I could find on the planet that doesn't have some day or days throughout the year to remember things or commemorate or a religious practice of some sort. And so do we. We have our, our holidays that we celebrate to remember. And we could talk about how we need to do probably better at remembering what the holidays point us towards. 
But nonetheless, we have these holidays. Now, interestingly, the Lord, he also had his holidays. Did you know that? God had seven. Yahweh declared seven key appointed times throughout the year. 3,500 years ago, he said this. These are the appointed times of Yahweh, the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. And in Leviticus 23, where I just, you know, cited, he goes on and he talks about four key days in the spring. And then he talks about three key days in the seventh most holy month in the fall. And one of these in the fall is one, it's, it's an incredible day. It's one of the highest holy days in, of the whole Hebrew calendar. The day of atonement, the day of kapar, if you were looking at the Hebrew word. And if you were to look at that word kapar, you'd find it means to cover over, to pacify, to make propitiation. It's also translated in the Old Testament, other places, to appease. This was a solemn and awesome day in Israel. This was the day, the only day in the entire Hebrew calendar when all of a sudden, guess what becomes the focal point? The mercy seat. Because the priest had a very elaborate system that the, the Lord walked us through in Leviticus 16 and walked them through when he said this. He said, tell your brother Aaron in 16.2, that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on top of the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. And then you can go read about all the instructions that he gives to Aaron. He told the Aaron exactly what he should do, how he should bathe, how many times to bathe, what he should wear. Did you know that they would, he would wear, the high priest would wear a special linen tunic then and only then that day and never again would that particular tunic ever be worn by anyone. If a brand new clean tunic, they had all these stipulations that God gave them. And then if you recall, he was to come and bring a bowl first. And the bowl, he would lay his hands on that bowl. And the first thing he would do is he would confess over that bowl his sins. His personal sins. And the sins of the priesthood. That's what the bowl was about. And he would make it clear that he would confess it. And he would also right then. And on that day and only that day. Three times he would use the covenant name of Yahweh. They would never utter that name other than that day. Three times he would say, it was that sacred for them to speak that name. And then they would, they would slaughter that bull and they would take the, bull, the blood of that bull and put it to the side and someone would keep it from congealing. Well, then he would bring two goats and they would cast, take a special thing to cast lots for the two goats. One of the lots would say for Yahweh. The other one would be to go into the wilderness and so it would become the scapegoat. He would take then the goat that was for Yahweh, the sacrificed goat, and he would lay his hands on that goat. And that would now become the, 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 the representation or take on the sins of the people. He would confess over that goat 
the sins of the people of Israel, the nation, as they all traveled to Jerusalem to watch as this would unfold. And then they would take the blood of that goat along with the blood of the bull and they'd have that ready. And then the very first thing he would do before going into the ark, into the Holy of Holies is God said, you must take a fire pan and take some coals, put it into the fire pan, then take some incense and put it into that fire pan. And then you shall enter into the Holy of Holies with all the bells and things just to make sure he doesn't get struck down. And when he does, it says, I will, the, the room will fill with the smoke from that that incense, and that would represent God's presence in that, that location. Then he would come back out and get the blood sacrifices, and he would go back in, and he would take the blood of the bowl, and he would take it on his own hand, and seven times he would sprinkle it over the mercy seat. Seven times. Then he would grab the blood of the goat, and the, the, the representing the sins of the people and the atonement for it. And he would sprinkle that blood over the, the mercy seat as well. And throughout this process, this was a painstaking process that they had to follow to the T, lest he be struck down at any time. But it's critical to see that there was this union here. God and sinful man represented inside this ark. And right there's the mercy seat. And herein, God demands a payment, a payment for the sin. And that demand is, is a death has to happen. Life has to be given. And it has to be put out there because the wages of sin is death. And that, that payment was required and demanded. And there were the cherubim. They were there to ensure that a life truly was given to, as a covering for sin to appease the demands of the righteous God. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You got to see this here. You see, the blood represents the life of the flesh. And that, when it's poured out, it shows that a life has now been given. A life has been given. A death has taken place. And the blood is now being used as an atonement or a covering. They did this year after year. Every Tishri, month Tishri, the 10th day they would do this. Why did they have to do this over and over and over? Because this ultimate friction point between God and man simply doesn't just go away. And the blood of the bulls and the goats didn't fully get the job done. And they would go in year after year. We needed and they needed a paradigm shift. Are you familiar with paradigm shifts? In engineering, you know, we design things. Every once in a while, some engineer and inventor comes up with something that's radically different. And all of a sudden, it changes the whole course of everything. And it's like a disruptive technology. Perhaps the electric vehicle will be one of those things. I know there's stories about hydraulics and how that totally changed the whole world of earth-moving gear. But these paradigm shifts, we see them in small form in our world. But God, in his glory, needed to give us a paradigm shift away from this kind of system where the blood of bulls and goats 
just weren't getting the job done. Yahweh demanded a perfect atonement, an absolute perfect sacrifice, not from bulls or goats that are a different species, a different creature, unrelated to us, but he demanded payment from another Adam, the perfect propitiation. That's where Jesus steps in. Isaiah 53, 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded, right there in that union, for the transgressors. Amen. Amen. The Father was pleased by the guilt offering presented by Jesus. And Jesus bore our sins. He became the perfect intercessor at the ultimate point of friction between God and sinful man. And the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you carefully study it and read it out, it points us directly to the mercy seat wherein our Messiah paid the price once and for all, satisfied his father's demand. And he came and he did so, as he said to Peter, the cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, one may pause and ask, well, you know, why didn't God just forgive us and just go on? He could have just forgiven us. Did he really need all of this stuff we'll read, this blood sacrifice? Well, consider two, two points on that. He couldn't just forgive us and meet his own righteous demands. I've tried to make that clear. Thus, to uphold his justice, he must have a payment for each and every sin. And he positioned cherubim to oversee that that demand was upheld. And thus, Back in Romans 3, we hear of some sort of demonstration he talks about. 3.25 of Romans, God displayed publicly Jesus as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Verse 26 says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith or belief in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but a law of faith. Notice the impact on us. We can't boast or pursue some sort of standing with God by our works, but we approach in faith and belief, firmly believing the propitiatory work of our Lord and Savior. Second, consider another aspect if he would have just unjustly forgiven us. Consider what happens when you just unjustly acquit a person. If you let a murderer go free without any payment or restitution for what they've done, what will the life of that person really be like in, deep down in their heart? 
Will they know they've been cleaned and washed? washed? No. They will live with a seared heart knowing that they were guilty. And their, their, their crime was never paid for by anybody. And they'll, they could go in year after year trying to make a sacrifice. We could go in and we could keep trying to bring sacrifices. But Hebrews 9 says that both, 9.9 says both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Speaking about the old covenant, you could keep trying. You could keep trying. Lord, I know I was guilty. I know I was guilty. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'll bring whatever I can. No, it's not going to get the job done before a holy God. And forever you would live with that weight. But praise be to God that he's made a way to take and clean our conscience. And this, my fellow believers at CCC, is where the picture that, that I've tried to paint and what God has tried to paint in the Old and New Testament goes from really cool to incredibly awesome. Because the picture of the Old Testament system and the, the high priest, it was merely a shadow, merely a shadow of what Christ did and has done for us on the cross. Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For, get this, if the blood of goats and bulls, like I've been reading to you about, and the ashes of a red heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God himself, and he will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more? Will it be he he will get this job done to cleanse your conscience? For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Like we've been reading about in the Old Testament. A mere copy of the true one. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have had need needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. This is our hope and the glory that we have in Christ. We see Christ, the the expiator, the propitiation, The appeasement. He is the mercy seat. The hilasterion. He ultimately entered not just the tabernacle on the earth. But he walked into the presence 
of God Almighty, not just with a little bit of incense smoke to represent God, but God himself sitting there. And not just the small gold cherubim to represent this view of these angelic beings, but the angelic beings right there at the throne itself. And he, pre- he went in and he presented not the blood of some other creation, but the blood of mankind, of himself. The blood of the second Adam to come and make the propitiation before God Almighty. And amen that God the Father was pleased and was willing to accept on our behalf that atonement. And we've just read through scriptures that paint a very clear picture of Christ's atoning work by giving his life for us. His blood as a superior sacrifice. We've also briefly read about this solemn day of atonement that I tried to sort of paint. This one of Yahweh's great appointed times. And in some ways, when I read through these feasts, I've been doing a study of the seven feasts of God. They're awesome. They did all kinds of cool stuff. And they still to this day have times they'll stay up all night reading the scriptures, reading the book of Ruth, reading back through the account of Esther. There's one holiday at the Feast of Weeks. They'll stay up all night and they read the the first chapter of every book in their scripture. Those are cool holidays to remember what God has done. And this day of atonement to see the the shadow of the blood and to see this, this visualization of God doing this. And I say, oh, that's so cool. But we're not Jewish. We're not called, I don't find in the New Testament that we are called to somehow take up all those feasts, right? They keep it fairly straightforward. If you remember in the book of Acts when they had the the Jerusalem council, what do we tell these Gentiles? Well, but I do find one thing in the New Testament that is for us to do. That is a way for us to remember what God has done. To remember the mercy seat. To remember the propitiatory sacrifice that was given. And it's one that like the day of atonement. We should approach it in a solemn way. 